Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start by contextualizing this morning's message into the life cycle of the church calendar. Father Charles alluded to this in his message last Sunday, and I want to build on that just a little bit before I get into the meat of the sermon, and that is to say this. Most of us recognize that we've come out of the two major cycles of the church calendar. That is to say, Christmas and then Easter. And, and Christmas and Easter, if you will, is the great big because. Because this is who God is. Because this is how God has made himself known. So then there's the therefore. And that's really where we are right now in what we call ordinary time, which is not so ordinary, because the ordinary business of the church is to love Jesus and to make him known in the world. This is why we wear the color green. I'll throw this in for free. The color green represents growth. So the ordinary business, the ordinary time, the ordinary season of the church is to get about the business of the proclamation of the gospel for the growth of the kingdom of God. And that's what I want to focus in on this morning. It's interesting because the reading is only seven sentences. Seven sentences in today's gospel readings. And it's pretty remarkable. The Bible is remarkable for lots of reasons. But the reason I found it remarkable in preparing for today's message is that in seven short sentences from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, we're actually given the, the basic elements of what it means to be a Christian. Do we learn every single thing we need to know? No, of course not. Then again, Christianity is not only a lifelong journey, it's an eternal journey. But what we do get this morning, what we get is a, is a place to start and a process on which to, to build our lives. And what that does for us is it helps us answer some of the most important questions that you and I ask. ask how can I enjoy a good relationship with God? How can I enjoy a good relationship with other people? Now, but not only now, for all of eternity. So whether this sermon is for you a helpful reminder of these things, or maybe can serve as a tool for you to share the joys of the Christian faith with others, let us ask and answer the question this morning, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? The first thing we find in the first two of these seven short sentences is that being a Christian means to be called by God. Being a Christian means to be called by God. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 9, Matthew writes this. He says, as Jesus passed on from there. Now, I want you to hear this not just as words that I'm reading, but putting yourself into the story. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, and Matthew was sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus called to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew rose, and he followed him. 
To be a Christian means to be called by God. But let's take a a closer look at this call. Because when Jesus calls Matthew, we find in this calling the distinctive feature of the Christian faith which not only highlights the contrast between Christianity and every other world religion, not just the ones we know now, but the ones for all of human history, but this also, this calling, this point that I'm about to make has profound implications for how you and I understand God and most importantly, how we relate to God. You see, every other religion, here's your 50 cent word for the day, every other world religion talks a lot about the transcendence of God. And what they mean by that, and we Christians mean this too when we talk about the transcendence of God in some sense, is that God is not like us. But what they also mean is this, God would never become human. God couldn't even become human. And the implication of this belief about God, it it shapes what we think about God. It shapes how we understand God. It shapes how we relate to God. And what I mean is this, in some form or fashion, every other world religion essentially says something like this. God is somewhere out there, up in the sky, and he's given us a list of rules to follow. And he's watching us like a hawk and he's waiting to judge us. And the very basis of our eternal destiny depends on how good we are or how bad we are. If we're good, then we're rewarded. If we're bad, then we're punished. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I bet we've all had that kind of thinking about God in our minds at some point in our lives. Is it any wonder then, this is important, is it any wonder then that so many people are terrified of God and they they hate themselves because they don't know whether or not they measure up? Is it any wonder then why so many people are indifferent toward God? Well, if that's who God is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Or worse, they hate the very idea of God for that reason. But my friends, look again, look again at what the gospel says to us. And I'm going to ask you once again to put yourself in the story. Because what the gospel is communicating to us is that God does become like us. He takes on flesh. He's born of a woman. He grows up into a man and then he goes looking for us. And when he finds us, he talks to us. He even calls us by name. He then invites us to follow him, to spend time with him, to get to know him, to have a relationship with him. And I ask you this question. Does that sound like someone who's only interested in reading you a rule book so he can throw you into the slammer? That's a very serious question because that's how so many people think about God and they they misunderstand him as a result. Now let's, let's put these thoughts in the context of Jesus meeting Matthew. I want to again invite yourself to think about being in the shoes of Matthew as much as you can this morning. You see, because whatever Matthew may have believed about God before now, whatever Matthew may have thought about Jesus before this moment, 
in this moment, at this moment, when Jesus calls Matthew, what Matthew sees in Jesus, what Matthew finds in Jesus is something so powerful, so, so compelling, that without another word, he, he simply rises up and he follows him. And it invites us to consider this. This is the point. What have you thought about God until now? What have you believed about Jesus before now? If God in Christianity has felt something like a cold and calculated court of law to you, then I ask you to look again. This time, look at Jesus. He wants to be with you. He wants to talk to you. He wants to call you his friend. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be called by God to have friendship with him, to have fellowship with him, to be with him. But in order for this friendship, for this fellowship to bloom, to grow, to flourish, there's a second thing that's involved in being a Christian. Being a Christian means to be converted. Being a Christian means to be converted. So let's look at the second three of our seven sentences because after Jesus calls Matthew, it tells us, get this, stay in the shoes of Matthew with me. They're sharing a meal together now with other tax collectors and other sinners, and then along come the Pharisees. And when the Pharisees see it, they say to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I don't know whether or not this means that those who collect taxes are in their own special category of sin. That, that's, it's okay to laugh at that. That was, that was meant to be humorous. My priest joke, sorry. But all kidding aside, do you hear what's happening? This is where so many people get stuck. When people hear the word conversion, they either get afraid or they get angry. So let's look at why. Matthew and the other tax collectors and the other sinners, guess what they, they already knew? They already knew the kind of fear that comes through the conviction of conscience. Matthew was well aware of the baggage that being a tax collector carried in the Jewish community. Likewise, the other sinners, they already felt the guilt they already knew the shame of their sin. And as a consequence, they already, all of them, experienced isolation from their fellow Jews. And there's no doubt that their isolation caused them to wonder what God must think of them. To wonder what God might do to them. If, if the Jews hated them, wouldn't that mean that God also hated them? and therefore that God would also reject them. On the contrary, stay focused on the gospel. Stay in Matthew's shoes. Notice what Jesus has done. He came to them. He called them. And now he's sitting with them, even sharing a meal with them. And so in that very moment, my friends, I want to suggest this to you. I want to suggest to you that the slow, gentle, relational, loving process of conversion was now beginning. If, if Jesus is with me, if we're even eating a meal together, maybe God doesn't hate me. Maybe he hasn't rejected me. Maybe he's trying to take my brokenness and turn it into something beautiful. 
In that moment, those sinners were no longer isolated for they were with God and God was with them. But at the same moment, something else happens. Consider this for a minute. Let's now step into the shoes of the Pharisees for just a minute. What caused them to become so angry? Hurling words of hatred toward Jesus and his dinner guests? You see, the implication of their accusations is something like this. Whatever else is happening at this meal, around this table, among these people, it cannot be of God, and here's why. You better believe the Pharisees knew their scriptures. And maybe something like Psalm 5 Verse four was in their head that reads like this. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. It's as if they're having their own self-righteous gotcha moment. And it goes something like this. God judges sin. And so God punishes the sinner because God hates sin. Only they forgot this important part. Yes, God hates the sin, but God loves the sinner. We've heard this since we were kids. Hate the sin, love the sinner. And Jesus shows them this truth with one simple sentence. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Saying to anyone and to everyone who has ears to hear that we are all sinners in need of a savior. Could it be that the reason that the Pharisees were so angry is because their conscience was convicting them as well? What could they possibly say against the man who had healed the sick? What could they possibly say against the man who had raised the dead, who cast out demons, and who walked on water? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. One of the hardest, if not the hardest things that you and I do in life is to come to terms with our own sin. One of the hardest, if not the hardest things we do in life is to come to terms with our own sin. Whether our own conscience has convicted us and caused us to be afraid because of the bad things we do, or whether in a fit of rage we heap condemnation onto others and attempt to displace our own guilt, either way, in the end, one thing remains true. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. And now, when we finally look at the things that we've done to ourselves, to others, and to God, and we finally get honest about it, and by the way, that's what I'm asking us to do this morning, we begin to say to ourselves, how could God love a wretch like me? Why would God forgive someone like me? And then when we come to the realization that it's not God who has stayed away from us, but that we have strayed from God, it is Jesus who shows us that we have a choice. And at the core of it all, it is this. And this applies to every single one of us inside this room, outside these walls, and for all of human history. We can either choose to remain hidden under the shroud of guilt and shame and anger and isolation, or we can lift the veil and we can look to him and be saved. God has not given us laws because he hates us and wants us to fail, but God has given us himself because he loves us and he wants us to be free. 
And so he says to us in the last two of these seven short sentences, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came, he said, not to call the righteous, but sinners. So let's end this way. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how much he loves you? He loves you so much that he gave his life for you. And here's the only way we can think about it and come to terms with it and be freed from this guilt and this shame and this condemnation and this isolation. And it goes like this. Though I crucified him, though I crucified him because of my sin, though you crucified him because of your sin, yet he cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that, my friends, is the definition of mercy. That is the definition of mercy. And here's where it all comes together. When we realize that we did that to him, when we admit that we did that to him, when we confess that we did that to him, while at the same time realizing that he did that for us, that he spoke those words over us, that's it. You're free. Because Jesus says this, if the son has set you free, you are free indeed. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be called by God. To hear him speak the words, follow me, and like Matthew, to rise up and to follow him. It means to be converted, to leave behind the bondage of sin, and to live in the freedom and the fullness of his love that comes to us by his forgiveness. And finally, it means to be commissioned. That is to say that when we get a hold of what it means for God to show us mercy because he loves us, then our commissioning is to go and do it for others because he's done it for us. And in this way, we do enjoy a good relationship with God and with others now and for all of eternity.